We're continuing in Titus chapter 1. Last week Steve dealt with the first couple of verses that deal with the section that are specifically related to overseers in the churches of God. I'm going to continue on with that. There's so much material in there it needed to be divided up over two weeks. I think we should take the reading and more than the section we're going to focus on, just to see the reason and the context for why Paul emphasizes that Titus should appoint overseers. So let's read Titus chapter 1 uh, from verse 4. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For or because there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe nothing is pure. In fact, Both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for anything good. There we see the reason that Paul goes straight into the instruction to Titus to appoint overseers or elders. It's because, and it wasn't just a problem in the island of Crete, but it's a problem in every place where there is a church of God. That there is the tendency for people to accept teaching that is not according to sound teaching or sound doctrine. Paul when he writes to Timothy speaks of the same thing. That people will gather teachers around them that will tickle their ears. That give them what they want to hear rather than the truth about God. So Paul dives straight in here with Titus and says I've left you in Crete so that you will appoint elders in every city or every town. Because of this, we'll look more at um, that section that we've read into next week and talk about those who would deceive um, in their teaching and disrupt whole households and so on. That's for next week. But I just want you to see the reason why Paul is so quick to encourage Timothy to do this math, to do this thing of appointing overseers. Just before we go any further in this, I just want to say 
something I mentioned whenever we were looking at Romans chapter 13 and about society and the governance in society. I think the scriptures are very clear in showing us four realms in which he gives, God gives direct instruction about responsibility and authority. First of those is the marriage relationship. The second is the family unit. The third is society. And then the fourth is a local church of God and those local churches of God together forming a fellowship of churches or the fellowship of God's son as it's described in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 9. Those are the four realms that we see in the New Testament where God is very clear in his word that there are certain responsibilities and certain authorities that are in place and it's of him. And when it starts to break down in the marriage and it breaks down in the family, you see the effects of that in society. And we're there in our environment here in the West. The breakdown in society is a product of the breakdown of the authority that God has put in place in marriages and that then in families and that then in society. And of course then, that's going to have an effect, is it not, on how we think about the way responsibilities and authorities are to be in a church of God. If we're swimming around in this situation, that's going to affect our thinking. So we need to come back always to the truth of God's word. And that's what Paul's emphasis is in his letter here. Titus, stick to the sound doctrine. Stick to the truth as you've received it. Because that's going to safeguard against the church just reflecting what society is like. So, mention that at the beginning. I also say this before we go any further, that while this is primarily an instruction to Titus about appointing elders and overseers in the churches and their qualities and their qualifications, it's not exclusively for them. It's in God's word so that we might see God because he's the one who stands behind those standards that he's after. And he's after those same standards in everybody that he has brought to himself in Christ Jesus. It's spiritual maturity, really, that he's, he's after in all of us. I'll say more about that in a moment. We thought last week that overseers are made by the Holy Spirit. Here we're told that while they might be made by the Holy Spirit, Acts 20, verse 28, they're recognised by others who have spiritual maturity to recognize it in them. It's because of the responsibility they have, Hebrews 3 verse 17. Overseers have the responsibility to keep watch over your souls, the writer of Hebrews said to those that were in the churches of God in the first century. They watch over your souls as those who will give an account. What a responsibility, but it's been put in place by God. So, they're made such by the Holy Spirit. They're made overseers. Acts 20 verse 28. But they're appointed by others who discern the spiritual maturity that is in these men. That's there. It's a fearful responsibility. And as the list, we go into the list. I would really much rather somebody else was talking on this. But we can't bypass the word. And that's one thing out of this. You can't skip over a section because it makes you uncomfortable. The very fact that God has given us his word is that they might make us uncomfortable and then see the truth of his righteousness and his standards and say, God, how, and 
in any way can I live this way? And he says, I've saved you in Christ Jesus and by the Holy Spirit indwelling, trusting in him, you can be like this. So this is really given to all of us as qualities that should be seen in all of us. If you're looking for these sort of qualities in your leaders, but you don't really care about yourself, then there's a problem because your leaders are there to watch over your souls and to lead. So there's the expectation that there's going to be maturity there and everybody as well. While Steve said last week, and I've said just now, that overseers, on the basis of Acts 20, verse 28, that overseers are made by the Holy Spirit, that's not some magic pronouncement, if I can say it that way, that comes down from heaven on a man that suddenly says that you're an overseer. It's the product of a synergistic work. That means there's more than one party involved. It's a synergistic work of God, where the Holy Spirit has come to be in the life of a disciple. And as that disciple commits themselves to obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ to follow him, then they grow up in the things of salvation. They become mature. And that's the work of God at the same time as the individual works. Remember Paul said in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. The two things go together. So this is a work of the Holy Spirit, but it's not exclusively his work. There's a responsibility on the individuals in all of our lives to be obedient to the things that God has shown us in his word and that the Lord Jesus has spoken to us and modelled for us. And it's spiritual maturity that we're looking for here in terms of elders or overseers or shepherds. They are interchangeable terms for the same men who hold the same office in the local churches of God and then them together in a, in a fellowship. In verse 5, the word is elder. That's an adjective in the Greek. It's not a noun. So an adjective, if uh, you can wind your way back into your, your basic school stuff, and I really even struggle with this. Um, an adjective describes the noun, doesn't it? So it doesn't mean that the person is old. It means that the person is mature and spiritually mature. So this adjective in verse 5, the elder, then in verse 7 is described and called an overseer. That is the noun. And an overseer is somebody who in the Greek language that's used for that means somebody who watches. It's a watcher. So verse 7, the word overseer there is this watcher. That's a noun. That's a descriptive term for that office and that person. And the adjective that's mentioned in verse 5, the elders, the point elders, they're to be spiritually mature. You see that? Now shepherd is not in here in this, but we get shepherd elsewhere in the New Testament related to the work. And wherever you read shepherd and maybe put it in the place of overseer or elder, the word is always, with one exception, a verb. So it's to shepherd. So there you go. Bring that all together, noun, adjective and verb, and you have the work of an overseer. So an overseer is to be somebody who's spiritually mature and spiritually mature so that they can shepherd, care for and guide the flock of God. I'll say it again. This is expected of all disciples. Spiritual growth is a natural process that comes after the new birth. The new birth 
is the work of God alone in our experience. Jesus, when he was speaking to Nicodemus, John chapter 3, said, Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is like, well, how's that going to happen? And Jesus' response is, it's a work of God. You'll be born from above. Go back and study the early part of John chapter 3 for that. That is a work of God alone. To cause us to be born again, to be given new life in Christ Jesus, and to be lived in by the Holy Spirit. That is God's work. Once the Holy Spirit has come to secure that new status and new life for us, then it becomes a synergistic work where Jesus is calling us, follow me and do it in the power of the Spirit. And we step forward and become spiritually mature. It should be a natural process. Peter, when he's writing in his letter, says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up in respect of salvation. So just as a baby normally would be crying out for its milk and will develop, the same thing should be seen in somebody who is born again. There is none of this spiritual maturity without being born again. Hebrews 6 verse 1. There are things that can get in the way that can stunt our growth. And the writer of Hebrews says, look, we need to leave the elementary teaching about Christ Jesus he says, let us press on to maturity. He wanted to take the readers of his letter or his sermon even of Hebrews. He wanted them to take that in and to become spiritually mature. We're to become spiritually mature as this life that is given to us by God, that new birth, the Holy Spirit comes to be with us. And as Titus will come to, and we'll get there in chapter two, he says, this is the work of God in us to save us. An ongoing work of God in partnership with the disciples so that we might do the good works that he has prepared beforehand to borrow from Ephesians chapter 2. But we come to this in Titus chapter 2 as well. well. We'll get there in a few weeks, God willing. It's to do the good works that are done for the right reasons. I'm emphasizing this right at the very start because... I'm fearful that it's possible to look spiritually mature and appear to do good works. But yet the motive under all of that is not genuine and it's not out of the new birth that God brings us into. The reason I say that is philanthropy. I struggle to get my mouth around it, so I'm not going to say it again. But that in society is lauded. So whenever you do good things and so on, very often, people will say, you're doing great. But as soon as you say, well, the motivation for this and the reason I, I live this way is because of the Lord Jesus, suddenly you become a nutter. Now, if we stand there just with our good works and we're happy to show that I live a good life and leave it at that, but we're not prepared to say that that is all from a source that is in the person of the Lord Jesus and the work of God in our lives to give us new life, then there's a little bit of a disconnect. Not a little bit, it's a big bit. Do you get the point? Let's be careful that the motivation for living the good works that are described for us in God's word and going towards a maturity is coming from the Holy Spirit as a result of the new birth in us 
that will take us off into a life where the motivation for all of that is for God's glory and we will not shy away from saying the reason I live this way is because Jesus lived this way and died this way and lives again for me. And you can know him too. Let's get into this. Household care and management is my next heading. And I think in the section where we're looking at the qualifications or the qualities, we're going to go through this quickly. Um, We've already noted last week, Steve told us that in verse 6, the men here were to manage their families well. That's the reason why I started where I did about the, the family, the marriage and society and so on. If men have a family and that's dysfunctional, then that doesn't bode well for their ability to shepherd the flock of God. One thing we do need to say here, this does not disqualify unmarried men from being overseers. Verse 7, the overseer must be blameless. That's already been said in the earlier verses where it says the elders must be blameless or beyond reproach, depending on which Bible version you're you're reading. That means that the overseer is to be unimpeachable. There's not to be anything that could be levelled against the overseer that you could charge them with guilt on. Now that does not mean, though, that they are faultless or flawless. If the expectation is that overseers and those who have the rule over the people of God on God's behalf, if they, if they are expected to be faultless, then we're in for big disappointment because we we fail and we are not faultless we we still persist with sin but we are to live in such a way that in recognizing sin um, we're to confess that and to correct that but we're not perfect while we're to be like the Lord Jesus we cannot ultimately be like him in this life So please don't expect perfection, but do expect them to live in such a way that there's no charges that can be leveled against them. And remember in all of this, this is not just expected of overseers, it should be of all of us to live in this way. Because the scriptures speak about that, about all believers in other ways as well. Notice that it's an overseer managing God's household must be blameless. Or New American Standard that I read says, beyond reproach is God's steward. So it's referring here to the house or the household. A steward in Bible times was somebody who in a wealthy person's household, so they would have had land in a house and they would have had servants and and family, and maybe extended family. There would be somebody in an administrative capacity within that, one of the servants, who would have been given top job, household management and would have been responsible and accountable to the owner of the house but also vested with responsibilities to to act on behalf of the owner of the house. Such was the responsibility. That's what's in view here. And this is the stewardship that overseers are vested with. To be responsible for God's house and his household and to be responsible for the flock of God that is gathered together that they would be shepherded well, in First Timothy 3 and verse 15, Paul says this. He says, if I'm delayed, Timothy, I'm writing this so that 
you will know how one should act in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So Paul was writing to Timothy about behaviour in God's household. I just want to say this very quickly about God's house and God's household. The terms are, are a bit blurred in scripture. In the Old Testament you, you see God's house as the tabernacle and the temple. It's a physical structure. But there's also times when David speaks of, and God speaks to David of, his household. And that's a, a composition of people. When you come to the New Testament, you have this sense of a structure at the same time as you see that structure being comprised of people. Very quickly. 1 Timothy chapter, not 1 Timothy, 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. When you come to him as a living stone which has been rejected by people but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. So it's a spiritual house but it's comprised of people who are described as living stones. You then set that alongside Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 to 22 where Paul says, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The language speaks of a structure, but it speaks of that structure being comprised of individuals but those individuals in a local church of God being joined together with others, Ephesians 2, to form the temple of God today. It's God's spiritual house. And God dwells there. That's in addition to the indwelling we've already been speaking about that's in the individual. That when disciples come together in obedience to Christ, they form something glorious for God and God says, I'm there in their midst. So we've raced through that one. But I'm just wanting to emphasize here that this is about a household comprised of people. So the men that are called to this service, that are made such by the Holy Spirit and recognized by others, have a responsibility to care for the household that belongs to God and all the people that are in it. And the men are to be mature and strong in the faith and holding to the word of God, which is the sole source of truth in this world. So everything that happens in life and in service, the church of God should be based on God's word. I want you to just notice here where the NIV says the trustworthy message as it, as it has been taught, which is verse 9. Verse 9 says, he, the overseer, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. It gives the impression that this is something that was a doctrine that was being spoken about. Taught is, is a verb. But actually, in the Greek, it's a noun. Sorry to come back to this again, but it's a noun. It's the teaching. There was an agreed teaching that was the basis of all of their sound doctrine. And it was the apostles' teaching which they had received from Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, everything based on that foundation. Where there's deficient preaching, we have a problem. And what we've read on from verse 10 might be people who were very clever in wanting to bring down the churches of God in those days. But it also might have been people who could have been quite well-intentioned, but yet did not have a grasp of the truth and the sound doctrine in such a way that they were speaking of it in all of its fullness. Picking and choosing teaching on 
basis of what we prefer is a dangerous thing. For those of us that are listeners, we end up imbalanced and immature in one area and mature in another, maybe. So we need, the, we need to come to God's word and go through it. And go through it verse by verse, really. And be sure that we're getting it all. And teachers who avoid that are, are dangerous to the churches. The Lord Jesus prayed to his father, John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So we've got three minutes left and we've got five must nots that the men must not do and six musts that they should do. You'll be pleased to know I'm not going to spend any time on these. Not, let's just race through the hallmarks of the spiritually mature and strong men in leadership who take hold of the teaching as it's delivered from generation to generation. And they, that is the basis of life and service. And they don't let go of it. They hold on to it and they instruct others in it. And that is them caring for the church of God and the flock of God under their care. To do anything less than that is to fail in the duty of care that we have as stewards in God's house. Not to be overbearing or self-willed. You know, office and overseer is one of those offices where arrogance, it could actually be the occasion for arrogance. There's no place for pride in this. Not to be quick-tempered. Awkward. Sometimes it's possible to, to see things maybe as a leader that you would love to happen and other people are sometimes slow or seem slow to click in and to come along that can sometimes lead to ungracious responses can't it not given to drunkenness or overindulging in wine i think that's really just saying you, you, this man is not under the control of any other spirit other than the spirit of god not violent or a bully not somebody who's always itching for a fight. Violent is a bit, bit much, isn't it? Maybe not whenever you look at uh, what Paul says in verse 12. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. The fifth must not. Not pursuing dishonest gain or greedy for money. So it's not using this position of authority to line your own pockets. So that's for the overseer, but of course they all apply to all of us. What about the musts though? Hospitable. Generous and gracious treatment of guests, the friend of strangers. As Job said in Job 31, 32, I've opened my doors to the travellers. That's the sort of hospitality that's in view. One who loves what is good. What's the good? It's those good works that are mentioned in Titus 2, 14, Ephesians 2, verse 10, and so on. Eager to see that in their own lives and in the lives of those in the churches of God that they have care for. These people are to be self-controlled. And I think the self-control here is in the self-control whenever we're in uh, difficult spots with one another. We're able to hold it together when we're faced with challenges in our interactions with each other. Upright or righteous. Always wanting to do the right thing. Not the right thing according to what might be seen as expedient or the easiest route. But the right thing according to God's word. As Job said again. Job 29, 14. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. That was him choosing to do the right that he understood that God had declared. Holy is the next one on the list. If righteous is to do with our dealings with one another, then holy is our dealings with God, really. That's what's in view here. Somebody who has dealings with God. They're set apart to God and you can tell that in their lives. 
Now that word is applied to all of those who have been saved by Christ and brought to God. So it's to be there in all of us. And then the last of the musts is disciplined. Self-controlled stability. I see this as in all areas of life. In the Proverbs it says, 25 verse 28, Like a city that is broken into and without a wall, so is a person who has no self-control over his spirit. Easy prey for the adversary to come in if there's ill discipline. In what? I think it's in all areas of life, in eating and drinking, time management, punctuality. You say you're going to be there at nine o'clock, you're there at ten past nine or whatever. Um, Reliability. Exercise, caring for our bodies and so on. I think you see that. We're to see that in all of our lives as those who have been redeemed by God's grace in Christ Jesus. Were these men easy to find in Crete? Maybe not on the basis of verse 12 that we've just looked at. Have you noticed the paradox there? A Cretan says that Cretans are all liars. Just go away and think about that one. So is, is he telling a lie or what? Um, but there, there you go. Have a think over that one. But that's Epim- Epimenides is the, the guy who wrote this. And, but Paul takes it and says, look, the Cretans, are, they have a reputation for being a raucous bunch. But God has done a work in you. And Titus, I want you to find those men in that group where God's grace has come in and brought them to a new birth. And I want you to point the ones that you see where God has done a work and they have done a work together and they are spiritually mature. And they could not have been such if it was not for the work of God in their experience. Only by the grace of God and the power of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit can these qualities that are listed be found in any of us. And be genuine and God-pleasing and for the glory of God. Let's pray.